Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. Steve, who do we have with us this time? This time, we get a taste of the writer's life from Rob Hart. 95% of it is just hit him in the nuts. And bestseller Caroline Kepnes tells us what she knows about Eric Beatner. He's what we think of as absolute goodness, and then you see this dark side to that. That plus a panel of cops who write novels and a chat with author Ron Colby, all brought to you by our friends at Rare Bird Books. Now, a few titles that Writer Types listeners might enjoy include The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane by Rex Weiner, Body on the Backlot by Ava Monte Alegre, and The Second Son by Martin J. Weiss. Find out more about their excellent crime and mystery fiction at rarebirdbooks.com. Well, right now, Steve, I want to get to what you've been reading, but I also want to share with you a little something that I've been listening to. Steve, I am really digging this song lately, and I got to tell you, it's got a great beat. So tell us, who are we listening to? First of all, Eric, I take back every terrible thing I ever said about your musical tastes, because <laughs> what we're listening to is uh, an old friend of mine whose name is Jeff Whalen, and this is his first solo record, which is called 10 More Rock Super Hits. And of those 10 rock super hits, I actually played drums on two of the songs, including the one you just heard, which is Ground Game for Worm. Very impressive. Dusting off the old skins, as they, do they call them skins still? Yeah, and actually um, several parts of my body actually turned to dust while I was recording, just poof. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of fun to get to record with Jeff again. And if you love Power Pop, if you love Bubblegum, if you love Glam, this is seriously the record for you. And you can find out more about it at thisisjeffwhalen.com. So uh, in addition to what we're listening to, Steve, tell me, what have you been reading? Well, Eric, you recently recommended Twisted City, which is a book by Jason Starr to me. And I went ahead and bought it. And it is a, a really, really fun read. I mean, it to sum it up, it's about a dude who loses his wallet and then his whole world just literally goes to shit. Yeah. Um, and, and reading it, I'm having such a good time. The writing is so good that the pace is so fast. I just can't wait to check out more of Jason's books. So definitely thank you for that recommendation. How about you, Eric? What are you reading right now? Well, uh, I am reading another recommendation that I got, uh, a book called A Perfect Shot by Robin Yoakum. And uh, I'm really digging this book. It's a great uh, crime novel set in uh, sort of the Ohio Valley. But uh, like I said, th this was something that I saw recommended. People were talking about it on social media. I was intrigued enough, went and bought it, really loving it. So if you love a book, get out there and share and talk about it and recommend it to friends. It really does work. That word of mouth is key for writers. So keep it up. Yeah. I think Jason Starr actually owes you some royalties cutting you in on that one book sale that he got from me. <laughs> I have pushed many Jason Starr books into many hands. <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorites. All right. Well, it's time to get an author into the studio and we have bestseller Caroline Kepnes with us. Caroline is the author of you, 
Hidden Bodies, and the brand new novel, Providence. Caroline, your your first novel you titled You, and I want to know how much do you regret that title? Because frankly, it's impossible to start an interview because I'm going to say, well, let's talk about you, and it's immediately awkward. Yes. We laugh about that in the show because the book to me was so much about like modern narcissism. So I'm like, everywhere I see you, I'm like, no, you can't, you can't feel like that has anything to do with you. So every day, every conversation, especially with the show, it's like, I love you. No, 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 not me, the show. So you jumped right in and mentioned your, uh, the adaptation of the novel, which is going to air on Lifetime this September. Congratulations. Thank you. We're, we're looking forward to that. Well, in your debut novel, you, uh, a guy wants to know more about a girl, so he kind of internet stalks her, and maybe things go in a sort of questionable way, but really, is this like a rom-com turned on its head? I That's what I think. So I, I had watched You've Got Mail like 700 million times. I don't even need the volume on because I'm like, I know exactly what's happening. Yep. And when you get in a bad, dark place and you start to look at that movie in a cynical way, you see that this man with all the money and all the power is putting this woman out of business. And then she's sick and he's showing up and she's like, no, no, no. And he's getting into her apartment. And I think they call this catfishing. <laughs> but it's like, it speaks to the likability of Tom Hanks that like, he's just so sweet that even when he's like this corporate monster, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's ultimately it works out for the best for her. So yeah, as a person, like writing is how I rationalize how much TV and movies I watch. <laughs> Well, so I've read that your books have been described as satires of urban hipster culture. Do you mm. think that's accurate? A yeah, I think a little bit. I look at it as it's things we all do every day. And it's when you catch yourself being a little bit sick. Like you meet someone and you're Googling and you're looking at this barbecue they went to four years ago and you're zooming in. And we, we didn't have those tools before. And that's where it was so much easier to know that something was definitely wrong with someone if they knew too much. You know, so what we suggest is to start a podcast because I've been researching you for the last three hours on social media, but it's not creepy right? because yeah, no. of the podcast interview. It's, yeah, it's a license. Yeah. <laughs> is, is it bad that I think Joe Goldberg is kind of romantic? Is that, is, is no, that wrong? No, because that's what I was going for too. I was like, I loved the idea of this guy who's very old fashioned and wants all these romantic interactions in a bookstore and wants everything to be real. And he's all of that, what we think of in a vague way is absolute goodness. And then you see this dark side to that, you know? Well, you know, Joe Goldberg, this character from you, he was intriguing enough to you that you wrote your second novel, Hidden Bodies, uh, about his further adventures when he moves to LA mm -hmm. on this endless search for, for true love. <laughs> now, my wife moved from New York to LA. Oh. Before we were even dating, she moved out here to be closer to me. Yes. <laughs> Should I be worried? <laughs> no, that's don't you think that's romantic? Like it, it's all about how it works out. Yeah. If you're sitting here telling me about this woman who moved there and you had a restraining order and kind of lived in fear, like we'd be having a very different conversation. <laughs> Eric, I'd be much more worried about your podcast partner, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, so your new book, Providence, is a standalone, and, and this one has more of a supernatural twist to it. Do you believe in supernatural answers to the things we can't really explain? I do. I mean, I have, it's funny, I did an event on Friday at Romans and someone asked if I had a superpower. And I said that I'm a little psychic, but in the useless way, where afterwards I feel like I was going to say that that was going to happen and I felt <laughs> it. 
Well, as we record this interview, you just recently found out that Providence was picked by The Tonight Show to be <laughs> one of the finalists for their summer book club. This is exciting. Did you freak out? How was I that? I freaked out so much. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's okay on so many levels. Like, for books, this makes me so happy. Like, to see him up there with all those books. I love books. I feel like it's a very hard moment for reading because of the news cycle, because of a million different things going on. So to see books on The Tonight Show, like this forum for all these people who might necessarily not be thinking, what's my summer read? I think that's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. And that's where I'm like, you know, we all won, <laughs> you know, books won. <laughs> now it, it's, they're gonna announce, I think in about a week or so, which of the one book is, is gonna be the pick. Do you mind if we call you back and check in to see? Uh, I no, you can call, you can tell your friends to vote, you know. <laughs> All right, now, uh, you and I uh, connected over Twitter because I uh, stuck my big fat nose into uh, our, my friend Sarah Chen's uh, Twitter feed when she was praising the book Providence. Yes. In order to thank her for connecting us together, I offered Sarah the opportunity to ask a question. Uh, so here she is with a question for you. Hi, Ms. Kepnes. This is Sarah Chen, and I just want to say I absolutely loved Providence, and it's my first book by you that I've read. So I'm definitely going to read your other books as well. So it's actually kind of a two-part question. Which character out of the three in Providence did you enjoy writing the most? Was it Chloe, John, or Eggs? Just fantastic name, by the way. And then conversely, which character was the most difficult for you to write out of those three? Ooh, you know, I think Chloe was the most the most fun because of writing two books from a male perspective. And it had been so long since I wrote about a girl and I just loved her journey so much. And I loved that conflict of whether holding a candle for someone is a good thing that makes you a good person, a good woman especially, or if it's kind of detrimental to your own growth. And John, it was hard because in the sense that I don't have a superpower, like I don't have this ability to kill people by being near them. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, um, and also because I, with him, I wanted to be lost in him so much that the editing of that was hard. So that was hard to know like how much of those things to put in. You've taken a real cliched path. I mean, you've written for Tiger Beat, you've <laughs> written a gossip column, you wrote yes. for Seventh Heaven. So oh. at what point uh, did writing dark thrillers become the next logical step in your career? I always wrote really dark short stories, really twisted, like weird, where your mom's like, are you okay? <laughs> yes. So for me, like, there was this glitch happening in my writing where professionally, like journalism, I call it journalizing because it's like when it's Tiger B, it feels unfair to call it journalism. You know? <laughs> journalizing, like, <laughs> and in that, when like when you're writing with a purpose for an outlet, you're taking on their voice. And then, but all the while throughout my career of magazines, TV writing, I always wrote these short stories. And they were always really sick and twisted. And it was like, oh, well, when I go to do something, quote unquote, seriously, I turn into this serious person. So my first novel that I wrote was very like, it was raining that night and the willows were, you know. <laughs> and then one day, like it was after going through all this hell, it was like there was a fire of like, okay, my book is a giant short story. And if I think of it that way and I write myself and I don't try and write for what I think an agent wants to read, I don't try and write in a way that proves, but I'm serious. 
that something good would happen. So that was so that was a long road to that. Yes, absolutely. Look at that solid writing advice to go out on, Steve. <laughs> absolutely, and also I think short stories offer a sense of uh, uh, instant gratification that you can't get from longer works, right? So I true, and that yeah, and that builds your confidence and makes and builds the writing experience because you have those memories of like, oh, I'll remember when I finished that and I did that. And it's not about it being your best; it's about the fact that you completed something. Yeah. Now, what what was what is this self confidence you speak of? What I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I know. I, I can talk about it, but uh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to call Caroline later and check in on that Tonight Show pick. But for now, it's time for our unpanel. And this time we got together a group of current and former members of law enforcement who also happen to be accomplished novelists. And we wanted to know from these experts, what do most writers get wrong when writing about the police? Is the most common answer that Sting is an underrated bass player? <laughs> that was good. Oh, wow. My name is Jay Todd Scott, author of High White Sun and the Far Empty. I've been a DEA special agent for almost 23 years. I think the thing that most crime writers get wrong about law enforcement is the amount of actual accountability that comes with the badge and gun. It's fashionable to write about rogue cops and agents bucking the system and breaking all the rules, if not making up their own. But that's a lot harder to do in real life than it ever is on the page. Maybe you can pull some of that stuff off in a small department, like the remote Texas sheriff's offices I write about. But in an organization, a true bureaucracy, the size and scope of DEA, there are seemingly infinite checks and balances. There's a policy and procedure for everything, and multiple supervisors overseeing it all. Now, that's hardly exciting, and no writer wants to have their badass cops slowed down and hamstrung by endless reports and briefings and approvals. That's about as thrilling as watching someone endure a credit check. But that's a hell of a lot closer to fact than fiction. In the real world, a truly rogue cop or agent doesn't stay employed long, and there's not much story in that. My name is Patricia Smiley. I'm the author of four traditional mysteries and more recently three hard-boiled police procedurals. The Pacific Homicide series is based on my 15 years as a volunteer and specialist reserve officer for the Los Angeles Police Department, including five years in the detective squad room as a burglary and theft investigator. Here are a few ways crime writers get it wrong about law enforcement. Don't have a cop taste any substance to see if it's an illegal drug. You can't, for legal purposes, tell what the chemical composition is by tasting. It has to be analyzed if it's to be used as evidence in a court of law. If it's LSD or some other powerful synthetic drug, you've just overdosed. And if it's poisonous, you could die. Also, only a sociopath has no remorse or emotional reaction after shooting another human being even if he's a bad guy. That's why the LAPD requires cops to see a department shrink after officer-involved shootings. And another thing, an automatic pistol should never have to be racked going into a dangerous situation. That means there was no bullet in the chamber and the cop was walking around with a useless gun. Remember, research is your friend. Hey, Paul Bishop here. I spent 35 years with the Los Angeles Police Department, 30 of them as a detective investigating sex crimes, and I also had another career at the same time as a writer. 
I wrote 15 novels, about two dozen hours of television, and a feature film. So I think I have a pretty good idea of what it is that writers get wrong when it comes to police work. We all know the old saw about never putting a silencer on a revolver. Used to see it all the time in 70s TV. Well, people have finally caught on that that isn't correct. You can't silence a revolver. But there are still a lot of mistakes that are made by writers when it comes to police procedurals. The biggest bug for me is good cop, bad cop interrogations. Good cop, bad cop, folks, is illegal. It is a violation of our Fifth Amendment rights not to be intimidated. I can count on one hand and have fingers left over the number of times in the thousands of interrogations that I conducted over the years that I actually raised my voice. Interrogation is nothing like you see on television. Well, I think that was a lot of really interesting responses from three authors to one question. But, you know, Steve, I think it's time we ask one author five questions. Well, we have Ronald Colby on the line, and Ron is the author of Night Driver, which is out now from Rare Bird Books. Ronald began his career as a playwright and actor, as well as a film and television producer. And now he's used some of his own experiences behind the wheel of a cab to inform his new book. Your debut novel, Night Driver, is about a taxi driver searching for his wife's killers in 1970s Los Angeles. What's the strangest thing that's ever happened to you in a cab? I did drive a cab for a while, and uh, the strangest thing, my first night, I took a cab without a radio. And this being Los Angeles, I drove around for four hours, and I never got a fare. No one flagged me down. I'm from New York City. And uh, I couldn't go two blocks in New York without getting flagged down. But here, nobody flagged me down. And uh, I just found that very peculiar. Apart from the airport and hotels and whatever, uh, it's just cruising the streets is a, a futile exercise. You know, not many debut novels feature a cover blurb by Francis Ford Coppola. So tell us, how did that come about? Well, Francis uh, is a long acquaintance of mine. I I worked for him. I was a producer for his company. I was a vice president there. And uh, while I haven't worked with him for maybe 25 years, when I finished the book, uh, you know, you go to where your strengths are, ideally, and I sent it to Francis. And he was very kind to write that blurb. So you've had a very successful career in TV and film. What's more difficult, getting a movie made or finishing your first novel? I would say I started this thing 30 years ago and I kept getting uh, jobs, you know, uh, come produce this or come do, do this. And uh, so I would lay the book down. And once you lay something down and step away for a few months or a year even, uh, it's very hard to get back into it. So I said to my late wife, I said, that's it. I'm just going to sit down and write it. And, and that went quite smoothly. I sat down, you know, did the real writing in three months, and that was it. Now, your character, Nick Cullen, is a man on a mission for revenge, which is one of my favorite uh, plot drivers in a novel and in real life. So you got to tell us, what's the most vengeful thing that you've ever done? Well, you know, I'm kind of a wuss now that I thought about it. And uh, not like, you know, some Italian vendetta or something. 
and I've never had anything as horrible or remotely as horrible as what Nick went through. I am from New York City, and uh, there is a code among uh, a certain class level, if nothing else. I could latch on to it, and I knew people like that. But I myself tend to turn the other cheek and get on with my life. I really love your descriptions of old L.A. and Night Driver. In your opinion, what's a more dangerous place, the Los Angeles of the 1970s or modern-day Los Angeles? That's a good question. Modern-day Los Angeles seems to be more or less under control, but it's just bursting at the seams. And uh, 70s Los Angeles, especially in the Venice area, that was a pretty rough place. Now, of course, it's been gentrified to the to a fairly well, but it was a lot different then, and uh, I would say certainly more violent. All right, well, I definitely like the sound of Night Driver, and if you do too, now's your chance to win a signed copy. Just head over to our Twitter page at Writer Types and tell us the strangest thing that's ever happened to you in a cab. In our next episode, we will select a random winner for an autographed copy of Night Driver, courtesy of our friends at Rare Bird Books. Writer Rob Hart is the author of five novels featuring Ash McKenna. His latest, Potter's Field, is the end to that series, but he has a lot more in the pipeline, including one of the most talked about books of the year, and it's not even out yet. You recently made the move to being a full-time writer, and we want to know, so far, how many naps have you taken? Oh, I've, I've lost count. <laughs> it's I, I can't count that high. I, I've realized this by around 3 o'clock, I start fading, you know, no matter where I am. And if I'm in the office, well, you know, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to like have a cup of coffee and perk up. But when I'm home and I'm like sitting in my comfy chair with my laptop, it's like, oh, you know, I don't have to pick up the baby until five. So this will be <laughs> fine. Has it tempted you at all to create something like a Jack Kerouac dream journal? Not, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I actually, I, I'm so deep in edits on my next book that I'm actually like literally having dreams about it. I, like I had a dream where I kind of worked something out, which was kind of nice. So, so this is totally effective and, and a good thing that I am doing, that I am sleeping more. Well, you heard it here first. That's a really strong writer advice from Rob Hart. Uh, when you're tempted to take a nap instead of writing, go ahead. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. It's fine. <laughs> well, let's let's not jump ahead to your next novel. We want to talk to you about your newest Ash McKenna novel, Potter's Field, which is the last in the series. Yes. How did you feel when you typed those two words, the end on the Ash McKenna series? It's it's kind of bittersweet, you know, because the thing about this. And so this is the fifth book in the series. And I knew I wanted to end it on the fifth book. And it gets to a point where writing in that voice, it's like a comfortable pair of shoes, mm. you know, like maybe they're kind of old and maybe they're kind of worn, but they feel so good that you never want to take them off and you never want to get rid of them. But at the end of the day, the whole series was about this sort of messed up kid growing up and, and finding his moral compass. And, and it, the series doesn't work if he doesn't find it. You know, like there needs to be that end point. There needs to be that point where he's he's grown up and he's become a man. So, you know, part of me is really excited to be moving on to new stuff. And part of me just like, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, well, you know, I probably have some more ideas for this. 
Well, and you've been writing Ash for years now. And, and what do you know about Ash now that you didn't know at the beginning? That's an interesting question. Um, when when I first wrote New York, it was it was totally me working out like my I'm in my mid twenties and live in New York bullshit. You know, <laughs> like a lot of a, a lot more of the book is more uh, autobiographical than I would ever admit in polite company. And as the series went on, I you know it wasn't just about him growing up; it was about me growing up. You know, like the first book was very much me working out whether or not I wanted to stay in New York. Uh, the second book was about becoming a dad. The third book was about sort of opening myself up to other people. The fourth book was about opening myself up to myself and, and being comfortable with myself. And, and the fifth book was really about just like finally feeling like I'd arrived someplace. So it, it wasn't even really what I was learning about Ash. It was what I was learning about myself. It's a therapy session, it sounds like. Kinda, yeah. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Steve. This could be a chance. I, I've, I have a feeling here. This could be our first writer types interview where we make someone cry. Oh God, I've, I'm I'm actually already crying. So is, is that what you were talking about? Because that was very touching. <laughs> no, 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 no touching. We, we've had interviews like that before. We're, we're trying to cut down on the touching. Well, this oh, is God. why we do it remotely now. <laughs> yeah. Rob, you're a writer who likes to create playlists for his books. Yes. What were some of your favorite songs on the Pottersfield playlist? And are there any particular themes we should be aware of as we read along? I mean, I have rules. Like, so I always put together a playlist for every book that I'm working on. And it has to have at least one Johnny Cash song, always. I can't repeat tracks by any artists. And it has to be what in my head qualifies as CD length, 13 to 15 songs. So, so the Johnny Cash song that made it through was Ain't No Grave, uh, New York State of Mind by Nas, Lust for Life by Iggy Pop. Though the song that I really think kind of summed it up was I Feel It All by Feist, which I wanted the book to sort of be a lot more positive about this character, accepting himself and accepting his place in the world. Yes, it's okay to live in this place because it's not about the bar down the block. It's about the people you surround yourself with. And it's about your your family and your friends and the people you love. So you include Johnny Cash on every one of your playlists for these five books. Can you give us a little peek into what you think will happen if you don't include Johnny Cash? Like what goes wrong if Johnny Cash doesn't make the playlist? If, if I don't include Johnny Cash on the playlist, there's going to be some kind of weird singularity and everything is just going to blink out of existence. Oh. Um. <laughs> well, you know, Rob, it's very well known that most writers could probably kick our asses, me and Steve, anyway. <laughs> but now you actually study Krav McGraw. Yes. So uh, we want to take this time to get any tips that you have for us uh, that we can use to defend ourselves in case uh, some other writers try to steal our lunch money. 95% of it is just hit them in the nuts. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the The reality is, is that I'm doing this to keep up with my three-year-old daughter because she scares me. It's still not very effective against her. She headbutted me this morning and almost knocked me out. So <laughs> how and often does she go for the nuts? Oh God. She's, you, you know what it is? She, she's so tiny. Like she, she's small for her age. So, so I, I can still carry her around a lot really easily, but like her foot's just in the perfect spot now where like she starts <laughs> swinging her foot and all of a sudden it's like, I'm on the floor. All right. Enough about being kicked in the nuts. 
Your next novel, The Warehouse, generated a ton of buzz at the London Book Fair this year. Crown Publishing eventually snatched the book, followed by Brian Grazer, who grabbed the film rights as a possible directorial vehicle for Ron Howard. Yes. So what I want to know is, what was it like to watch that incredible swirl of international activity from your attic office in New York? <laughs> Uh, really fucking weird and surreal. The Ron Howard thing in particular. So, so my agent sends me an email and he's kind of feeling me out. He's like, you know, we have multiple offers for film and TV. Do you have a preference? And I'm like, that's a ridiculous question to ask because that's like, here's like 10 flavors of really incredible ice cream. Which one do you want? But you only get one. And so he writes back. He's like, okay, what if it were a film directed by Ron Howard? And I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I, I yell out, what the fuck? <laughs> And my wife is sitting in the living room and she looks over at me and she thinks something is wrong. And I tell her and her response is, what the fuck? <laughs> like, it's incredible. And I'm so thankful and I'm so happy and I feel so lucky. And there's a part of me that still believes that this is an elaborate prank. That like this is like a hidden camera show thing that they're just really committed to this gag. And uh, <laughs> I hate I, I to mean, break it to you, Rob, but this is the big reveal right here. It's all a joke. <laughs> Let, let's bring oh, in God. Todd Robinson to tell him. <laughs> Sons of bitches. <laughs> we got you. <laughs> well, I you know I don't want to be too forward, but you and I have known each other for a long time, and you've known yeah. Eric for a long time. So you know, if you I haven't read the warehouse, but if there are any roles. Uh, for a couple of, of moderately handsome podcast hosts, uh, if you could just put in a good word for Mr. Howard, that would be, I mean, it, it would be appreciated. I can hook that up. <laughs> I, I, I say that like I have any influence in this. I really, so I, uh, when I, when, when this whole negotiation was going on, uh, my, my film agent, uh, Lucy Steele at, at, at APA, who, who was fantastic and wonderful, you know, at one point in the conversation, I'm like, I kind of feel like my role on this right now is to go sit in the corner and fold my hands and just behave. And she was like, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, thank you for your candor. <laughs> well, we might have to wait for a year for that buzzed about novel, The Warehouse, to come out. But uh, Steve, you and I have no such luxury. We got to get cracking on the next episode already. But before we go, I'm dying to know if Caroline Kepnes had Providence chosen by The Tonight Show. So let's check in with her via satellite. We can't afford a satellite. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's a very small satellite. It's, <laughs> it's a phone. <laughs> so Caroline, it's good to catch up with you again. It's been about a week and you're out on book tour. Clearly you've been drinking, but I need to know, are these celebratory drinks or are you drowning your sorrows? Did Jimmy Fallon pick Providence for the book club? No, he didn't. But to be in the top five, like now I understand all those people at the Oscars, you know, after who were like, it was a thrill to be nominated. Like now, I mean, I that's how I feel. And that is not the alcohol talking. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, you've, you've put on a brave face, but uh, I will let you go uh, so you can trash your hotel room to your heart's content. <laughs> Thank you. This is my mom's house. So I'm just going to start breaking lamps. You know? Okay. <laughs> Well, she, she's probably used to it. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit sad for her, but I'm also sad for us because, Steve, another episode has come to an end. What did we learn? Uh, Caroline Kepnes definitely taught us to lose with dignity, but we're already experts at that. And Rob Hart taught us that naps are an integral part of the writing process, and that is not something they teach you in an MBA class. 
And Jeff Whalen taught us that Kung Fu Criminal is an excellent song title. Oh, now that's a song I want to hear. I'm going to hit play. Folks, if you like the show, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes and find us on Twitter and tell us what you thought about the episode and what books you're reading. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>